when we would study these psalms, you probably study them separately. And, uh, you know, it could be easy to do so, to read um, Psalm 1 and 2 separately, to study those separately, because there seem to be about certain, like, different things in some ways, but they have a lot together. They, they run together in other ways. And one of the things I'd read just recently was that when Old Testament, even Jewish commentators and even uh, some early Christian commentators, they would put those two chapters together as one and, and actually viewed them that way. And so this morning I thought we'd look at the two together and then try to pull up together the pieces. Now, they're certainly about the wickedness and rebellion of people who will be judged and then the righteous that will be saved. And one of the things I just want you to keep in mind as we look at this, and Robert, I think I'm humming just a little bit. You guys pull it down a little bit. But anyway, one of the things I think that, that kind of come together for us is, is and, and I think you just kind of keep this in your mind, you think about the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but walks in a way in perfectly pleasing God. That man, the only one that truly did that was Christ. And then in chapter 2, as you're going to pick that up, and we're going to be thinking about that, and you look at the, the son, and he says, this is my son, he's pleased with the son, and he says, kiss the son. And again, you're saying, okay, this is the messianic figure, the Christ that's come. And so we're going to kind of bridge those two together and we'll certainly look at how it applies to us, but also how we look to Christ in both of these Psalms and see that clearly. And so as we start, and we're just going to begin in Psalm 1 and verse 1, it says, Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, the righteous man does not walk in the way of the wicked. That's just something that's very clear. The word blessed here, when it says blessed is the man, when you look at that word and you think blessed, it's the idea of being approved by God. That's one aspect of that, being approved by God, to be under God's blessing. You and I have been studying Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what did God promise them? People, land, and, and what else? Blessing. To be blessed is to be under the blessing of God, is to be, to be not under the curse, but to be in a place of being approved by God and, and being blessed by God. It's just a very powerful thing. Jesus started His sermon. In, in His kind of Sermon on the Mount, the, this wisdom that He brings to us, and he, he gives us the Beatitudes. Blessed are those. And He kind of lays those out for us. He says, those who um, are poor in spirit and mourn and meek and hunger and thirst for righteousness. He lays that out and says, this is what it means to be approved by God. To be under His blessing. And some of those, as you read them, you think, boy, that seems like difficulty. But yet, God's saying, look, look, there, Jesus is saying, you may be blessed by Me, but maybe you would experience some difficulty in this life, certainly. But this man... Here, it's in the negative. This passage begins with a negative. It's, it's what they don't do. That's where it starts. And he says, Blessed the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. I was thinking about college campuses. I don't know uh, how long it's been since you've been to a college campus, but oftentimes, as you walk along a college campus, there'll be students coming out of the classroom or coming out of a building, and they're talking, and they're saying the professor gave us this horrible assignment or this test is coming up and they're walking together and they're talking. But if you move on through, down a college campus, you may come to a place where they're sitting around a table. It's very often they'll study together or they're maybe stopped somewhere and they're dialoguing and actually arguing their points whether you agree. At seminary that happened all the time. You'd be like, well, I think this about this and this about this and people are just sitting there like trying to work all those details out and they're talking about them. Well, ultimately some people they get like to the point where they love doing that all the time. Kind of goofy. No, I'm just kidding. 
But they love living in that kind of foggy area where everybody's dialoguing all that stuff. And they get a PhD, and they sit down at a table, and they begin to expound on these things. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit with a seat of scoffers. It's almost like it's a progression. And the people at the very last of that, they have like a PhD in wickedness. And they could teach everybody around them about wickedness. And they are an example of wickedness. And so it progresses. And so I just think it's important that you see that. And as we move forward, as you're moving through that, you know that in your own life. Or maybe you've seen like a teenager kind of grow up and they begin to hang out with people and they keep moving forward. And eventually they go down roads that you would never dream because they walk in that way. Now, there's a couple of things I think it's just important to say as you're looking at that. One of the things about the false teachers, even in the New Testament, is loaded with this. In Jude chapter, uh, well, it's only one chapter, but let's say chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, what happens is uh, Jude is about to write to the people and he said, I, I feel the necessity to, to instead of write about what I might have written about, to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints because certain people have crept in unnoticed and they're people who, who really pervert the grace of God and turn it into sensuality to de deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. What it's saying is there's these false people that come in and seek to destroy the church with wickedness. Ultimately, what he's going to say is at the end of Jude, he's going to come to people and he's going to say, listen, you need to help people out of sin, but be careful. Because when you do, you may get dirty, and you will. And that's right that you would want to help your brothers and sisters out of sin, but make sure that you be careful, but you might fall into that. And so the blessed man is the one that walks in the ways of God, not in the way of the wicked. The positive side of that is in verse 2. Notice what it says. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The righteous man delights in the law of the Lord. I mean, you, you, when you... bed thinking on them it's such a different thing to go to bed at night meditating on the law of God to meditate on the goodness of God to wake up in the morning longing to get a place where you could gather with God and hear his word you, there, there is a very clear picture where you are spiritually if you do not delight in the law of God and, and you can say, well, I mean, I kind of like it. No, do you long to feast on the Word of God? It shows something about you. It shows something about your humility. It shows something about your love. It shows something about what you're passionate about. This man delights in those things. And notice what happens. By the way, I just thought, I have met guys who I thought, man, uh, would, would talk really good about the law of God. But, but as far as really meditating on it, I mean, they would say, I believe these things. I believe the Bible is the Word of God. But treasuring it is something totally different. I just think it's important just to stop there and say, notice that. Now, as you move forward, notice what it says. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. 
It's imagery. Again, in that world, in that culture, I mean, it is an arid climate. And, and just you never know whether you're going to have, be in famine all the time in Genesis. They're having to run to Egypt. Why? Because there's this massive river, the Nile River, that flooded every year and all these wonderful things. It allowed them to be a very powerful nation. But what we see here is it's planted by streams, like multiple streams. It's a beautiful thing. One were dried up, the other one is there. And notice it yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. And one person said, um, the, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing about that. It's like it's something both beautiful and fruitful. His life is both beautiful and fruitful. It's a very powerful image for us. Spurgeon calls those rivers the rivers of pardon, the rivers of grace, the rivers of promise, and the rivers of fellowship with Christ are never failing sources of supply for him. He's meditating on these things. He's embracing them and seeing them. So anyway, I just think it's important that we just kind of look at that and say it's a very powerful thing to understand. Now, whenever, whatever he does prospers, that's something interesting because you meet people that think that means that it's all going to be good. That means you'll never have trouble, and that's not true. It's not true in a fallen world. And honestly, one of the things, again, Spurgeon says, that to faith's eye, this word is sure. We perceive that our works prosper even when everything seems against us. It is not our outward prosperity that the Christian most desires and values. It is soul prosperity. That's why he's in the law of God. Yet even here we find true prosperity because it is often for the soul's health that we are poor, bereaved, and persecuted. Sometimes our worst things are the best things. The saints' trials, Spurgeon says, is the divine farming that produces abundant fruit. How blessed is the one who meditates on those truths and walks in that way. Verse 4, notice what it says, the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. The, what would happen is they would go to the floor and they would toss it up and basically what happens is when you take the harvest and you toss it up in the air, the grain falls to the ground, the chaff blows away. That's the wicked's road. It's blown away. All that they've done is, is a vapor, has no eternal value or significance. They may have done great things in this world, but in eternity's eye, when you look towards eternity, they are wasted. And they are useless when it's just done for their own gain, when they're building their own way, and they're doing it in wicked ways. Very powerful thing. Verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment or sinners in the congregation of the righteous they will flee but God says to them you're going to flee and cry out to the rocks to crush you but you will never get away from the wrath of God no one's going to escape that when judgment comes you could go anywhere you're like Jonah who said I can go to the bottom of the sea but God found me it's a very powerful picture that they will face these things in judgment, and they will not stand, but run. All their arrogant words will be silenced. They will also not stand the congregation of the righteous. Now here's something very powerful. Throughout the Bible, the church gathered was often made up, even though we don't want it to be that way, of a mixed people, believing and unbelieving. And one day, those people will be giving an account, even if they stand among the people of God, when they are not, God can see your heart. He knows. 
what is going on there, what is true and what is right. Verse 6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's a very powerful thing to know these things. Jeremiah says, Before I formed you, God speaks to him in the womb. I knew you. God knows the way of the righteous. The idea of knowing is it's his foreknowledge. God can see. He has set in motion. He has set his covenant love upon his people. And he is going to call them out. And he is going to draw them into fellowship with him. He says of them in Matthew 10 that not a hair of their head will be miscounted for. God numbers even the hairs of their head. He intimately knows his people. Job even says in the face of suffering, in Job 23 says, but he knows the way that I take when he has tried me. I shall come out as gold. He knows even in his trials, God is, is working all those things out. He knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I'm going to read one more thing from Spurgeon because it was so rich this week to kind of read from him. But he says, not only shall they perish, but their way shall perish. The righteous carve their names on the rock, but the wicked write their memories in the sand. The righteous plow the earth and sow a harvest that will never be fully reaped until we enter eternity's joys. The wicked plow the seas. And there seems to be a shining trail behind their kill. Nevertheless, the waves will pass over it and the place that they knew will know them no more. It's a powerful thing to see, to understand, to comprehend that God is with His people and He is walking with them. It would be foolish today to say, I will not walk in the ways of God I will not repent of my sins and trust Him and follow after Him. That's a fool's way. But here's the thing. The reality is, and that's what you just kind of put this together, who is the only man that truly delighted in God's law in every way? Who is the one that is faithful in everything? Who in no moment walked away from the law of God? It is the man, Christ Jesus, who came to us. He perfectly embodied the law. And in our failure, we trust in His perfect obedience. So this is both a model for how to live, but it's also a reminder that there's only one who fully lived it out. And we are holding on to Him. And we cling to Him. Now, Psalm 2. How does the world respond to this man? How does the world respond to what is going on? They rage against him. Look at verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? Why? Because by nature we are sinners. There's an unholy hatred of man that is so great. It's insane in their wickedness. And they're rejecting the Creator of the universe. They seek to throw off His rule and do every imaginable thing that even in their conscience is screaming out, don't go that way. They still embrace it. Why do they hate the Creator of the universe? Again, it's because they are from their birth, they come out little rebels, longing to have their own way. 
How do they respond to the evidence that they have? Romans 1 says they suppress it. They do everything they can to hide it. They want to find all these different ways to push away the truth that is before their eyes. They walk outside and they see the birds and the mountains and the deer. Sorry, I had to throw it in there. But they see all of these things and they observe it. And it's, it should cause them to say, if, the, if, if this is a creature, there must be a creator. And they push it away and they silence it. And they take creatures and exalt them to the place of creator. It's a very powerful thing. So as we move forward, this is the deal. Now here's the thing. You would maybe ask, and I have people say this all the time, if I could just see Jesus, if I could see his miracles, if I could see his works, if I could hear him speak, if I could ask him questions, if I could do this and this and this, how did the people respond in that day? The people that were preaching Messiah. The people that were preaching that Messiah is coming were screaming out, crucify Him. They saw Him, but they did not submit to Him. And the world, the nations, the Roman rule, the most powerful nation of the world, Pontius Pilate, the governor, says, he lets him go to be crucified. And then you think about like the Roman guards and they're, they're casting lots for his clothes and they're yelling out things towards him. It's just important to understand the clearest revelation of God came to all of humanity and they rejected him. What was the extent of their hatred for God and his ways? They plot in ways, that's what, that's what uh, Psalms 1 says, they become PhDs in wickedness. And they seek to teach others to do likewise. What do they say? Notice what the text says here. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. One author said, on a graceless neck, Christ's yoke is intolerable, but to the saved sinner his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Judge for yourselves. Do you love that yoke or do you want to throw it away? What do you want most? What do you long for? They want to cast off their Creator and Lord of the universe and silence Him. They want to cast Him away from us. And we see here, I mean, it's so... Look, unbelievably clear, those who want to be under the yoke of Jesus, those who submit to His rule, those who want to live under His authority, those people find His burden light. In our day and in every day, when Paul was writing to Timothy, he says there's all kinds of wickedness going on and people will accumulate all kinds of people. But just listen to a few of the verses he says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for the people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people as these. I think it's important that we note that. Now, notice what God says. God is not silent as the nations rage. 
He's not silent. Notice in verse 4, he who sits in the, in the heavens laughs. These people are crazy. It is absurd that they would say, <laughs> they are little ants. They come and go. I cast, I mean, I build kingdoms and I crush them. They are nothing in my sight. And they're standing there. And you meet people like that even now in their little small kingdom. They have this small business, this small house. When you get up in an airplane, you go, are you kidding me? You're nothing. Your life will, I mean, it's so passing. It's so fleeting. And they stand there and they rage against God. They're the most to be pitied. The Lord laughs at them. And then He speaks. And He terrifies them in His wrath and in His fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What's he saying? I will set up a king, and he will be the king of kings, and he will be under my authority and rule, and he will be great. And you kings, what we find out in Daniel, will be crushed by him. His kingdom will never cease. When God faced Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful men of their day, it's almost, it's amazing. Pharaoh keeps raging and God just sends plague after plague after plague after plague after plague on him. Why? To prove to the world that this man would be crushed by the Almighty God and he will preserve his people. And finally, after all of that, it wipes out his nation because of his pride. Nebuchadnezzar is standing and looking at his city and saying, look what I've done, and God makes him go crazy. And he's eating food out of the field for like seven years. And his hair grows really long and his nails are, that says, like eagles, you know, claws. And it's just all these crazy things. And you think, good night. How could they rage? What about you? Do you rage against God? Do you really seek after God? Do you wish you could throw off some of what God said? Just, just a little bit? Just, just kind of say, I'm, I want my own life. I want to live for me, myself, what I want. First question is, what do I want for my life? Is that raging against God and His way? Or is that coming under His authority? As you keep moving here, it says, God speaks to them in His wrath, and honestly, he's, when He does that, there's this fear that comes upon them. There's no king that will match him. Jesus, Lord of all. And honestly, we can read the Bible and say there's coming a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Verses 7 through 9 here, then the Son speaks. God the Son speaks. He says, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, the Father said to him, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. God's placed him in the highest place of authority. And what, notice what it says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your, in, your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's interesting, over and over, and I don't have time to go through all that, but in Hebrews 1, verse 5, in Hebrews 5, verse 5, in Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 27, in Revelation 1, 5, 227, 12.5, all these places are speaking of Jesus as the one. Jesus as the one that is spoken of here. And the Lord says, I have begotten you. You are my son. Ask of me and I'll give you what? 
the nations, all the earth will be mine. All the earth the Son will ask for and God will give it to him. But it won't, listen to me, listen to me. Satan promised him that. You know that? Satan promised him that. Satan said to him, you can have all these things without the cross. But it didn't come that way. Jesus is crucified and then he comes forth victorious as the reigning Lord who rules over all. The first coming, he's the suffering servant. He's obedient to God, Psalm 1. In the second coming, he comes back as the reigning Lord, Psalm 2. And all things will be in subjection under his feet. I think it's really a powerful picture as you're seeing this unfold that God is doing it. But here's the other thing. Do you know how the nations, do you know how the nations come to the Lord? There's two ways. One in salvation and one in judgment. Today, as, as um, the Copelands have come here to us, they're speaking to us about how the nations will come. The nations will come. Jesus is calling people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. He's calling them to Himself that the nations may come, that they may submit to His rule now, that they may come under His authority now, that they may experience Him as Savior now, so that when He returns, they will be gathered among God's people instead of perishing in the wilderness. We have a responsibility as the King's servants to carry the message of the kingdom, the message of the rule of the king, the message of a suffering king who's a suffering servant for us who died in our place and raised victoriously so that we could come under his authority and have eternity with him. The nations need to hear. You have a responsibility to embrace that. We do. That we would proclaim the name of Christ among the nations. Notice what happens here, verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. What's he saying? Serve, rejoice, kiss the Son. One author speaking of this says, The hands... He holds forth for you to kiss our hands that were pierced by nails when He was crucified in your place. One day He is coming as the great judge of all. On that day, the wicked will be punished, but today is the day of His grace. He invites you to come to Him. The final verse says, Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. It is a reminder that the only refuge from the wrath of God is God's mercy unfolded at the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus in Psalm 1, if you see that, of course, we say again, it's an application to us to follow, but in Psalm 1, He is the perfect Son. He perfectly obeys the Father. He walks in the way. He doesn't walk in the way of the wicked, but walks in the righteous, and He is preserved, and He is fruitful, and the fruit is here today. In Psalm 2, the nations are raging against Him, but He not only came and walked this perfect life and died on the cross, but in Psalm 2, they rage against Him. But one day, He's coming back, 
And when He comes back, He will judge all the nations of the earth. And listen, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And heaven will come down to earth and He will set up His kingdom. Before He does though, before He sets these things up, He will, he will destroy all those or, and put them in hell. He will bring them together, put in hell all the rebels, and He will set up His kingdom for His people that they might live and enjoy Him forever. See that? The powerful two psalms for us today. And not only that, not just for us, it is a calling for us to take this gospel message that the King has come, that He died, He rose again, victorious. He's coming back. And all those who find refuge in Him will be saved. And all those who don't will face eternal Father, we just ask You today that You would make it clear to us that You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That our King Jesus lived for us what we could never live. That He died the death that we deserve. That He rose victorious to set up His kingdom that He's doing that by drawing people out that He's chosen from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that one day He will return. He will defeat all our rebels, all the rebels, and set up a glorious place for us to dwell. As we wait, we ask, Lord, for those who are lost here today, who have not hoped in Christ, that they would repent and find refuge in Him, trusting in Him. And Lord, we ask for the nations we ask that You would use the Copelands, many like them, and us to proclaim this message to the nations, being those across the street and those all over the world. In Christ's name, amen. You stand with